Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Good morning and welcome to the series of podcasts organized by ACE. So we want to thank you for joining us and we also would like to thank ACE for organizing this series of podcasts on trending topics for endocrinologists. So today we're going to be talking about two very important and trending topics in the field. And one of them is diabetes. So we know that the prevalence of diabetes is increasingly to pandemic figures for the last few years, but also we will be talking about chronic kidney disease, which is also reaching pandemic figures. So we know that for the last 10, 15 years, there has been an increase of 90% of the prevalence of CKD. So today we're going to be talking about chronic kidney disease and diabetes. So that's the title of our podcast. As I mentioned before, these are two really very prevalent condition that have a big implication for patients on morbidity or mortality, but also a high healthcare utilization for our system. So we would like to tackle some topics that are trending for endocrinologists and also discuss uh, very important recent advances in the area. So first, I would like to welcome our invited speaker. She is Dr. Catherine Tottle. She's a professor of medicine at the University of Washington and also the executive director of the Research Institute of Providence Healthcare System, and also the co-principal investigator of the Institute of Translational Health Science at this institution. Dr. Toto is a really well-recognized international leader in the area of diabetes and chronic kidney disease. She is a dual board certified in nephrology and endocrinology, so we have the luxury of learning from the two specialties. And also she serves as my mentor on my NIH research study. So it will be a pleasure to discuss with her about our fascinating and very interesting topics. Welcome, Dr. Tottle. Well, thank you for that kind introduction, Dr. Glendo. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. My name is Rodolfo Galindo. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University. And I dedicate most of my time to clinical investigation particularly in the area of glycemic monitoring in patients with diabetes and advanced chronic kidney disease, and hence our collaboration in the area. We would like to go directly to the topic. As I mentioned before, we're going to be discussing these two very common conditions that affect many of our patients. So just to introduce the topic, Dr. Toto, how common is CKD among patients with diabetes? And that would be in the overall population and then by type of diabetes. Can you give us a brief overview of what is the impact of chronic kidney disease in a population of patients with diabetes? As you pointed out, diabetes is the other pandemic that's playing in the background of the current COVID pandemic and certainly an important risk amplifier for COVID. But the truth is that this pandemic has been going on for a long time and we see it going on far into the future. Along with diabetes, then comes diabetic complications. And chronic kidney disease remains one of the most common and most severe. It occurs in about 40% of patients with diabetes overall. And that comprises about a third of those with type one and about half of those with type two. And in some racial and ethnic groups, particularly non-white groups in type two diabetes, 
the prevalence of chronic kidney disease exceeds more than half. So it's a huge comorbidity burden in diabetes. And you know, you might ask the question, especially in type one, why is chronic kidney disease still so common? When we have data, say from the DCCT, that shows how effective intensive glycemic control is at preventing microvascular complications, including kidney disease. And I think that the, the explanation there is the unfortunate reality that most people don't receive DCCT type care. So yes, it's possible, but it's not happening in the community. So we still have an enormous burden of chronic kidney disease in both individuals with type one and type two diabetes. I can agree with that. So I, I see many of my patients, I work in a tertiary center, so I see very complex cases. And yes, the diabetes and CKD duo is very common in our population. So we were discussing that diabetes, high blood pressure, and prediabetes are common causes of chronic kidney disease. So when should endocrinologists or primary care pro professionals should consider diabetes kidney disease as a main cause of chronic kidney disease or other causes for chronic kidney disease? So that's a really important point. Is, is the kidney disease from diabetes or do we have two common chronic conditions occurring together? In type 1 diabetes, 95% of it is true diabetic kidney disease or diabetic nephropathy, classic glomerulopathy. In type 2 diabetes, it's much more heterogeneous, such that about half of cases may have non-diabetic kidney disease. This is because they have other comorbidities, for example, like pre-existing hypertension and hypertensive nephropathy. But the truth is, with rare exception, we treat them the same. I think the important thing, particularly in patients with type 1 diabetes, is to remember that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease that often clusters with other autoimmune diseases. So for example, if a patient with type 1 diabetes has some atypical features, say a young woman who has hematuria, which is not common in diabetic kidney disease, one would think of something like lupus or lupus nephritis. And that's important because we would treat those individuals differently. Other times to think about non-diabetic kidney diseases where the workup should go beyond uh, albuminuria and GFR screening would be anybody with very rapid GFR decline, like more than 10 mil per minute per year, or someone who abruptly develops nephrotic syndrome because they may have developed another form of uh, primary kidney disease, such as a glomerular disease, that if diagnosed, we would treat quite differently, for example, with immune suppressing therapy. The routine monitoring for kidney disease in both types of diabetes should occur annually. And it should not only include a urine albumin test, but also an estimated GFR. We're seeing more patients with diabetes, particularly type two, present with low GFR without albuminuria. So albuminuria screening alone is not sufficient. And so I want to make that point because in the field of endocrinology, we traditionally focus primarily on albuminuria screening. But the guidelines from ACE, from ADA, from the National Kidney Foundation, from KDGO for over a decade have all said to also screen with a serum creatinine or an EGFR. In type 2 diabetes, that really should occur from the time of diagnosis because, as I mentioned, they have other comorbidities such as hypertension that may be driving the kidney damage as well. But also, as you know, type 2 diabetes is very hard to date in terms of onset. And even sub-diabetic hyperglycemia for a long period of time, so-called prediabetes, can lead to kidney damage. 
in type 1. The recommendation is after five years of diabetes to start screening because that is a situation where the diagnosis can be made fairly accurately in terms of timing. And we rarely see microvascular complications before five years. But after five years, it should occur annually. And then also, if there's a change in therapy, so for example, starting an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, or some change in clinical status, like a hospitalization, those people should be checked more commonly in relation to those events, such as a medication change or a hospitalization. Excellent. Thank you. So I, I think that it was uh, key uh, to clarify what condition will require referral to nephrologist earlier and not just sit on this is just diabetes kidney disease. So it's very important to recognize that there are other causes. And sometimes, as you point, there are more than one condition contributing to the disease. So thank you for clarifying. And I have to agree. So we don't see good data on screening and treatment. So you mentioned that we have international guidelines on, and actually it's more than one. So we have um, the American Diabetes Association, ACE guidelines. We have KDGO guidelines and the, and the Kidney Foundation as well. And for 20 or more than that, receiving really good recommendations on what to do for screening and prevention of chronic kidney disease in the population of patients with diabetes. Do you think that we are doing good? Do you think that we need to increase awareness among um, clinicians, patients, or both? So that's a really important issue is that, unfortunately, awareness and detection still remain quite low. And... There was a study published this past spring in C. Jason looking at awareness of chronic kidney disease among patients with diabetes. And even in the highest risk group of patients, so people who we predict at high risk of kidney failure based on certain clinical characteristics such as albuminary and GFR, only 14% of people, even in a high-risk category, were aware that they had kidney disease or kidney disease was a risk of diabetes. And awareness among providers is, is also low. And I think endocrinologists are generally aware, but so many patients in diabetes are taken care of in primary care. And the awareness there among providers is, is also quite low. So as a result, when we look at real-world data, for example, in the study we published in JAMA called Cure CKD, which is a large electronic health registry out of Providence St. Joseph Health, where I work, and also UCLA Health, that has some 2.6 million people with diabetes, hypertension, or prediabetes, we only found there was 14% who were screened for albuminuria or proteinuria. Now, GFR testing is much higher, but that's because we accidentally get a GFR because so commonly these people are having chemistry panels and the creatinine's on the panel, but it's probably not intentional, whereas albuminuria and proteinuria screening have to be intentional. So despite our guidelines and despite all the things that we say to each other about the importance of this, where most people are receiving their care, albuminuria testing is still very low. And if we aren't testing and we aren't aware of the disease, how can we possibly address it? So this is really an important issue, especially now that we have some breakthrough therapies that really have promise for improving outcomes for patients. That will only be realized if we recognize the condition and we address it. 
I'm really impressed. I'm familiar with the data and I congratulate you and the group of investigators from the QRCKD database. As you said, it's a collaboration between Providence Health System and UCLA. So you have data on 2.6 million patients. So it's an amazing source of data, patient-level data. So first, congratulations. But I'm also impressed with the results of the, the analysis. So, so it looks like the magic number is less than 15%. 14%. So it looked like either our patients or our clinicians, endocrinologists, or primary care providers, they, so only 15% of them are aware of that we need to do some work. So, and this is very interesting, and we could even say alarming because the burden of both conditions in society, right? I'm very impressed because we have a strong guidelines, and I'm repeating myself again, that recommend the use of ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and based on really strong data. So we have a strong data to suggest and to put evidence-based recommendation for 20 years. And the utilization status is probably not that good either, right? So what do you think, do you have any data from this data set on the utilization of ARBs or ACE? Sure. And in the same paper, which was a description of this cohort, we also published medication use. And this data set includes all CKD, all diabetes, all hypertension, all prediabetes. So if we look at the subset of patients with diabetes, CKD, and high blood pressure, perhaps the hardest indication for an ACE or an ARB, the utilization was 25%. And overall in the data set, it was back down to 14%, almost aligning with that albuminuria testing. So that is really concerning because what it says is decades into a therapy that clearly has benefit and has been recommended by virtually every professional society that makes recommendations on diabetes and kidney disease, at the very best, one in four patients are receiving the treatment. So we, I think the big lesson to me is that we need to focus on dissemination implementation science we weren't able to know this until we had these enormous data sets. And this data also has 11 years of follow-up. So it takes time to accumulate the data and learn this. But now I think, especially with some of the breakthrough therapies like SGLT2 inhibitors, if we want to really have these make an impact on patients, we really have to do things differently. We can't just publish the results of the trial, have them written into guidelines and walk away and expect somebody else to do it. Tag, we're it. And I think that, that now is the time that we need to think seriously about beyond guidelines, beyond evidence. How do we get the word out and how do we get the job done? Because otherwise it's not going to make a difference for patients. Yeah. So now I can say that the numbers are alarming. So 25% utilization of evidence-based treatments and down to 14%, similar to albuminuria. So my next question was why, and I think that you expressed really well that we need to go beyond the guidelines and do more implementation and more education. So you introduced the topic of the SGLT2 inhibitors. So are there any new treatments in the area? Are there new therapies or promising therapies, or maybe the future is not as promising as we had in the past? Well, I think SGLT2 inhibitors are really a breakthrough for not only for cardiovascular disease, but also for chronic kidney disease. And in fact, 
if you look at all the cardiovascular outcome trials and now the two major trials done in patients with diabetes and chronic kidney disease, Credence and DAPA-CKD, you see remarkable improvements in rates of things that really matter to patients like mortality and kidney failure. So, you know, there was an overall, the primary endpoint was a composite in these studies of substantial GFR decline, depending on the study, either doubling of creatinine or a 40% decline, both of which are highly predictive of kidney failure, along with true kidney failure events and deaths, 40% reduction on top of ACE and ARBs. And remember, we're not even giving ACE and ARBs, but what it says is if you do give optimal therapy, you can further reduce the major events by 40%. And in DAPA-CKD, the most recent study to publish, I'll point out that the all-cause mortality was reduced by a third. And in any disease state with any therapeutic, on top of standard therapy to get an all-cause mortality reduction of 30% is almost unheard of. And so these truly are breakthrough therapies. And we really need to focus intently on dissemination and implementation of these therapies. But we also have to get the house in order. We need to get the prior standard of care in place. Remember, these studies were done on a background of ACEs and ARPs. We need to get people on their ACE or an ARP and an SGLT2 inhibitor. But these really hold promise for things that matter most, like staying alive and among the living, maintaining health without kidney failure or heart failure. So this will be a missed opportunity if we don't do a better job of dissemination and implementation. So I think this is the golden moment. We have this sort of data now, and this really should be our focus going beyond evidence to implementation. And certainly going back and implementing what we've known has been standard of care for decades, and then implementing the newest therapies, which are the SGLT2 inhibitors. Impressive. I'm a very optimistic physician, and I think that we're always going to get better. And I can compare it to a few years ago, and, and I think that we're doing much better in diabetes care. But it's concerning that we have all these advances in therapeutics, and we don't use it. So you think that it's just education of clinicians, or it's more implementation, or maybe everything? How can we disseminate and make this happen? Sure. And I think this is an area that needs to be studied, but I'll give you my viewpoints on it. I do think there's an educational issue, particularly for patients. I think clinicians, many of them know about these agents, but I think some of them are intimidated to use them. So for example, with ACE on ARBs, people in primary care may not be comfortable with monitoring potassium for hyperkalemia, or what do you do when the GFR drops on an ACE or an ARB? Uh, they, I think, are somewhat intimidated. They shouldn't be because these are all manageable. But I think in real life practice where they're extremely busy and burdened with 15-minute visits, sometimes it just seems too difficult. I think if we have activated patients, though, who say, hey, doc, should I be on an ACE or an ARB? That would help. And then with regard to SGLT2 inhibitors, I think we're going to have similar issues with uptake because of you know, the side effects that are well known to this audience, which if we don't do a better job of educating clinicians and making them comfortable will be intimidating, right? Like genital mycotic infections, euglycemic DKA and so forth. But these are all surmountable barriers. It's more a matter of education, mentoring, so that clinicians get comfortable with the mitigation strategies and they can feel like they can use these agents safely. 
There are cost issues. Early on, that would have been true for ACEs and ARBs, but more recently, you know, those are now generic, but SGLT2 inhibitors in the United States are still quite expensive, even for insured patients. The co-pays can be hundreds of dollars a month, which is too much for many people. And then besides the cost of therapy, I think I alluded to this, this gets to be complicated care, right? Because these patients have diabetes, they have chronic kidney disease, we're talking about multiple drugs. And remember that when I go to my clinic, they don't just have diabetes and CKD and hypertension, right? They've got cardiovascular disease, and they might have a lot of other chronic conditions. And I think that we need to reimagine models of care that are really designed for people with complex chronic illness, which is not a 15-minute visit. And, you know, that gets to be bigger issues regarding health policy. But I think the truth is that in, in the type of clinical care settings we have, it's very hard to give this sort of comprehensive, complex care in, in a 15-minute primary care visit. Yeah, so medicine is a science, but it has an art. So I, call, I usually say the art of the medical science. Yes. So focusing on endocrinologists, and that will include our colleagues in primary care that have a passion or a focus on, on endocrinology conditions. So I think that it's important for them to recognize that now we have new data that is moving beyond a glucose-centric approach. So we have been focused for so many years on the glucose target. And while that is proven evidence to improve outcomes, we have new outcomes that are beyond glucose metrics. And we can get into a different podcast on moving beyond hemoglobin A1C, but I don't want to get into the topic. But I want to encourage all our endocrinologists and, um, and clinicians in general, and nephrologists as well, to move beyond the glucose-centric approach, not forgetting that glucose control is an extremely important key metric for prevention of diabetes complication. But now we have therapies that works before that A1C reduction. So I think that we need to start moving our thinking and that would take a lot of education. So I, I really agree with you. So I was just dreaming for a second. And I think that the, the association I will encourage, and I'm a member of the Diabetes State Committee ACE and the Vice Chair. So I will try to advocate for putting together a collaborative multi-institution or multi-organization initiative to advocate for better implementation. And I really like a point that we were making. So we recognize that patients don't know they have chronic kidney disease. Physicians don't do a good job on prescribing evidence-based. There is a cost issue and there is also access. So I think that in this meeting that I'm dreaming with, uh, we need to invite our colleagues from the insurance. We need to invite the industry advocates. We need to invite patients uh, groups or, or advocates. So I think that a multi-organization collaborative meeting to address implementation and dissemination would probably be a good idea. I'm not a good friend with meetings, but that would be the start point, right? So we get a meeting, we get all key stakeholders in place, and then maybe we come up with good ideas. So I'm just saying in this podcast, and then we'll take it further later. So my next question was about barriers and what is limiting all of these, but I think that we were discussing and, and the flow of the conversation went really well. So one topic that I want to make and I want to get your opinion on is, so we know that we're not using the good drugs, right? So we know we're not using the good strategies that prevent kidney disease. We're not doing good screening. We're not doing 
good utilization of these evidence-based treatments, are we doing also good in that sense? So we're not using the other agents that we know that are harmful to kidney. So I'm just trying to get into the topic. Are we not using A's and R's and using too much NSAIDs? So any data? Yeah, so thank you for asking that question. That's the other side of the coin, right? So we aren't doing things that are helpful. And are we doing things that are harmful? And yes, actually, there are two classes of medications we now recognize as being highly nephrotoxic, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and proton pump inhibitors, both of which can accelerate GFR decline. And in fact, those nephrotoxic agents were used in over 30% of patients while we were giving ACEs and ARBs to 14%. So we more commonly do harmful things and less commonly do helpful things. And I'm speaking of the collective we, but that's where the awareness comes in as well, right? Because in patients with diabetes, whether they have kidney disease or not, they're high risk for kidney disease and kidney disease progression. So the last thing we want to do is give them nephrotoxins if there's any alternative. So we are more likely to prescribe a nephrotoxin than a nephroprotective agent, which is another very sobering reality in the real world. And Rudolfo, I really like your idea about multidisciplinary and multi-specialty collaboration, because I really think that's the key to moving forward and working together with common goals and complementary skills. And I would add that the other stakeholder that I think should be at the table are representatives from the healthcare systems, because you know, there has to be a value proposition. And certainly we need the insurance companies and we need pharma support, but we also need the healthcare systems to say, what is it, what is it going to take to deliver that kind of care? And since in the era we live in, many, if not most of us are now practicing within large healthcare systems. I do think that there is an opportunity to, to work within the systems to make it a priority and value-based care where those people in leadership positions can help us set up these these models that um, will benefit patients, but also, as you said, benefit the entire cost structure of healthcare and society at large. Um, yes, we are dreamers, and I know we're going to have this dream. So we're dreamers and achievers. Uh, we're going to work on these. All right, so we had a really nice conversation, and I think that we touched really important points. And I'm not going to get into the specifics, but what is really remarkable to me is that we have really two common conditions, really very prevalent, you know, diabetes and chronic kidney disease. And then it looks like we're giving more harmful medications and using much less beneficial medications. So that's really concerning. And then it's also very concerning that we're not doing the right screening. So we're missing a big opportunity to improve care. And then I guess this is more work for us, but we're happy doing it. So we need to work on dissemination and education. And I know that we work on these many, many times and many throughout the year. So for our endocrinologists and members of the ACE community and other organizations that are listening to the podcast. So it looks like we have two very bad conditions that our patients need to get better care and uh, we're not doing the right job. So I encourage everybody to start using more evidence-based recommendations on to avoid harmful medications. Dr. Total and myself, we're always available if anybody has questions. So once again, thank you, Ace, for organizing this podcast. And thank you very much, Kathy. Uh, this time, you're Kathy and Dr. Total for joining me. It's been a pleasure to work with you. I think that we spoke this week many times. So it's always a pleasure. So thank you so much for helping make our patients' life better. And thank you, Ace, for organizing this podcast. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.